Welcome to the Byline Scotland podcast. I'm Ronnie Barber. The ITV drama Breathtaking has just finished on TV. It's based on the book by palliative care consultant Dr. Rachel Clark and depicts the often harrowing and frightening scenes on the front line of the COVID pandemic response in our hospitals. Earlier, I caught up with Dr. Dan Goyle, NHS medical consultant and health policy editor for Byline Scotland, to talk about the drama and the ongoing effects of COVID on the NHS. Dan, there's a scene in the lift where Abby Henderson, played brilliantly by Joanne Froggatt, is the consultant. She's standing next to her colleague and the colleague just turns to her and said, there is no plan, is there? And that really kind of hit me because there wasn't a plan. What was it like for you when you realised there wasn't a plan? Yeah, I mean, I think very disappointing. Uh, I was actually at the time in Gibraltar and I was watching it unfold in the UK and just thinking this is just going to be an absolute disaster. I mean, this is, they, they are not prepared for this. And the kind of chat that was coming out and the, the triaging kind of criteria that was coming out from, from from Public Health England at the time was really worrying. I mean, the, you know, this was keep people at home until they absolutely need, you know, high level support. And that just flew in the face of everything we've ever done in medicine. I mean, you, you know yourself, Ronnie, medicine is about getting there early, supporting them, preventing the complications and getting people out of the hospital quickly once they've recovered. And this was the exact opposite. This was just wait until they're absolutely gubbed, they're on high levels of oxygen, and then try and rescue them from there. I don't know the exact reason for that protocol and where that came from, but, you know, obviously it felt like to some, I think, that we didn't have a lot of tools at our disposal but what we do know, and, and you know yourself, Ronnie, early intervention with just basic care, basic care, oxygen, you know, uh, prevent blood clots, get the right meds in, rest the patient, get the right fluids on board. You know, these basic things save lives. Always have, always will. And it was just kind of like that, that well, those things didn't really matter at that point. Yeah, it was terrifying, <laughs> really, Ronnie. Uh, yeah. It was a sense of chaos, Dan. You've got these highly trained doctors and young doctors, and I want to talk about young doctors later on, but the fact that they were trying to come up with solutions about beds, uh, triage, uh, trying to sort out who was going to get the treatment, uh, and actually just trying to work out what COVID was doing. That's what kind of mm-hmm. shocked us looking at the the drama. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, and, and, and yet we knew, I mean, we knew SARS-1 um, we knew what was coming out already. The Lancet had published a very detailed study about what COVID looked like and what to expect. I mean, we were in Gibraltar, we were further ahead in terms of we had cases earlier, we were in February, and we were prepared. I mean, we were well prepared. We had we had our COVID unit, we had our COVID ITU, we had the proper PPE. The, the government had put all the COVID staff up in you know, studio apartments so they didn't have to go into their families. You know, we were prepared. And and, and actually, I, I admitted the first case in Gibraltar, I remember it very well. And it's actually something that 
comes through in breathtaking, you know, very well, is how quickly the guidelines changed. And we were following public health guidelines at the time. And the lady I saw, 80-year-old lady with COPD, uh, with obstructive airway disease, quite a good 80-year-old, came in and at that point she didn't qualify for a test and I treated her as just an exacerbation of COPD, treated her, sent her on her way. The next day she came back in, she now qualified for a test. That's how quickly guidelines were moving. And eventually our public health director turned around and went, you know what, it's just too chaotic, public health England. We're just going to go our own way and we'll judge it as and when we need it. And when I was there, I left in September 2020, actually came back here to be COVID lead in the local hospital. And when I left, we'd had a thousand cases and no deaths at all with a thousand cases. And that was, you know, we were testing aggressively. We were, you know, PPE was the proper PPE. You know, it wasn't difficult stuff, this, Ronnie. This wasn't complicated. And, and you know, the big question we need to ask is why did it become so complicated in the UK? It was basic stuff. Uh, yeah, let's talk about that. The, the thing about uh, the testing. We didn't have enough tests. Uh, we didn't know who we were going to test. Well, initially it was the travel history uh, that you know, we had to find out if anybody would travel in the areas that we thought would be a threat. But the downgrading of PPE, that came from up high. And I just wondered why, why with all the advice that had been happening, and we'd seen what happened in Italy, why did, why did we think our PPE could be downgraded? Absolutely incredulous about this, Ronnie. I mean, I think, you know, there's been a lot of travesties throughout the pandemic. This has to be one of the biggest ones. I mean, there was no basis, no clinical health and safety, public health basis for doing that. And really, I would have respected the government more if they turned around and said, look, yeah, we've not got enough PPE. Sorry, we're going to have to try and take it on the chin. I would have respected them. Instead, they just overnight downgraded the PPE. Next thing you know, you're in this paper mask, which we know doesn't protect you, has some protection over other people, but doesn't protect you and then just, you know, get on with it. I mean, I think it was awful. And bear in mind, Ronnie, this was, we were an international outlier here. This was not a normal thing to do. Germany didn't do it. France didn't do it. Norway didn't do it. WHO didn't change their recommendations. FFP3 for frontline workers. You know, proper gowns, proper gloves. This was the normal recommendation across this, you know. And and did people die because of it? You know, unequivocally, people died because of it. I mean, there's no conceivable mechanism you can think of where people didn't die because of this change in policy. And yeah, the government need to defend that now. They need to stand up and say why that happened. And I'll tell you what I'm scared of, Ronnie. I mean, you're probably going to go there, but I'm actually slightly afraid that the PPE was delayed so that the VIPs could get their own supply chains in, in, in line. I mean, you know, these were, they were companies saying we could provide it. They were rejected. They were not engaged. And then later down the track, when all these companies had the opportunity to set up their supply chains, then the PPE came, too much PPE at that point, and not the right sort. So I think there's a question, did the government delay the acquisition of PPE primarily based on profit 
and based on what was in the, the their, their donors' best interests. I think it's a real question, um, and I, you know, we hopefully you know, good law project. You know, Carol Vorderman's on the case. Yeah. Byline Times, one of the first to break the news. Hopefully, they will stay on it and, and maybe get us an answer to that question. What I also thought came out really strongly as well, uh, Dan, was the fact that the disconnect between the front line and Public Health England, NHS England, there was this disconnect about what was actually happening. And I wondered why that that wasn't get transferred. Why was that information? And why were we not having people coming in to wards and seeing hot, hot COVID wars and saying, hell's teeth, we've got to do something? Why did that not happen? I think another great question, Ronnie, and, uh, you know, one that we should hopefully get an answer to. I mean, you know, really, when a, when a, when there's a new disease like this, you know, a new infectious disease like this, the information that's most valuable, you don't have data. At that point, you don't have enough data to start, you know, by the time the data comes through, you're a week, you're two weeks down the line. What you need is the ear to the ground, listening to the staff saying, you know, I'm worried about this. And and classic example, it was in Breathtaking, the, the episode one, was silent hypoxia. Now, silent hypoxia, for those who don't know, is this quite relatively unique, it happens in a few other things, but relatively unique to COVID, whereby you could have someone that was so profoundly hypoxic, they would normally be gasping for breath or unconscious, and they were coming in, chatting away as if everything was fine, everything was normal. This was a, a phenomenon called silent hypoxia. And, you know, we were saying, wow, did you see that guy? Everyone was talking about it. Clinically, we were all talking about it. Yet the guidelines never changed for that. The triage guidelines never changed. Instantly, when you knew that was a relatively frequent occurrence, your triage system's out the window. You have to re-triage and say, well, actually, I need to be doing pulse oximetry. I need to be checking oxygen levels on particularly the vulnerable patients. They will not tell me over the phone that they're short of breath because silent hypoxia instantly that changed the game for us and and that did not and it still hasn't believe it or not it still hasn't transferred up into the guidelines into the triage why was it so centralized why were there not frontline clinicians feeding in to these meetings to the gold meetings to the to, to directly to you know the health sector so why was that not happening i don't know what must have gone against the grain so much for you for doctors and medics was this denial of life-saving treatment. You know, it could be down to ventilators, yeah. it could be a lack of oxygen, lack of beds ostensibly would be the biggest one. What was that like? You know, what was it yeah. like for people to be saying, I could save you, I could help you, people yeah. with cancers and things, I could, but I don't have the beds. I have to actually just not give you the treatment yeah. that you need. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the hardest bit of medicine just now by a long way, is that sense that you just can't deliver the care that you know you can deliver and you know that that patient needs. And you're kind of fighting fires and you're, you know, you, you, you're taking the big cases, you know, you're kind of going, right, okay, definitely can help this one. Let's get this one in. Okay, this one, maybe I'll bump it to the GP, maybe I'll bump it here. And 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 it's just awful. And you come back at the end of the day and, you you know, you worry about those patients that you sent home and you can treat. 
But I think the bigger point, what you're making there, Ronnie, is healthcare rationing. There was a preemptive, this was healthcare rationing before we even needed to do it. There was no evidence at that point that we needed to ration healthcare so much. Every hospital in the country was being triaged as if it was in central London or Manchester. And actually a lot of us, particularly early on, we had capacity. Actually, we could take more. We could we could actually probably send some staff down to London. We could probably take some sick people across. Why was that not coordinated and organised? And I just feel like at the, in, in the boardroom at Gold Command, centrally, you know, it was fatalistic. Everything was rationed. Everything was pushed away. Patients were pushed to, to stay in their own homes. And A, we did have the capacity to triage people properly. B, we could have easily expanded the bed capacity and used the NHS better, but we didn't. And those were central decisions that were made. Local decision-making was almost irrelevant because of these central decisions, uh, you know, and, and, and tragedy unfolded. And now we, the healthcare staff, have to live with the fact that we could have probably saved tens, easily tens of thousands of more people. So yeah, it's hard, Ronnie. It is really hard. My colleague, my boss, uh, last boss, my last job, she actually said, we've all changed. You know, we've all changed. I mean, we're all different after COVID. And we are. We're all different. Some good ways, but probably mostly not good ways, I would have thought. What did you think of the press conferences we were getting? I've got to say, I got... I felt so stupid. Uh, there was a clip in Breathtaking where we're all clapping hands and hitting pots. And, and I was, you know, I just went, we, we sucked into that narrative that this mm -hmm. was in some way helping the front line. And I just, I just felt we get absolutely suckered. I think the clapping, to be honest, I think it did help. It certainly did give us a wee boost. And, you know, there was things like, silly things, I think, you know, people would deliver pizzas to the yeah. COVID ward and, and, and you know, drinks and things. And, and, and you know, there were small things, but it brought us together as a team. We are the COVID team. We're in it together. And, and, and I think that did help. But, but yes, it was the spin. Every time you'd hear them speak, it got to the point I could not listen to another Westminster conference. It would, my blood would boil and I'm thinking, you have just reduced NHS capacity by 8%. You have just downgraded our PPE. You have told old people, 80 plus, who have short of breath to stay at home. I, I cannot look at you. I cannot listen to this. We're doing really well and we've got the best this and we best that. Absolute nonsense. I'll say this, Sturgeon, I could listen to her. Yeah. I felt... She was with us. I felt she was feeling the pain. She was trying her best, still copying England too much. I think we were following England way too much. We should have switched to follow a country like Norway or Sweden. And I, but I could listen to her. And interestingly, my mum, who's 65, she's got health problems of her own. She's very worried about the whole thing. Her husband's a GP, so she felt a bit more exposed. And... She, every time she listened to Sturgeon, she felt reassured. Mm -hmm. she, she calmed down a wee bit. That was the job of government, to be honest with us, to be truthful, but also to give us some reassurance. And the government completely failed on that. Westminster completely failed on that. Yeah, the, the role of government is to protect the population. That's, the, that's their first job, to get it done. Mm. Uh, let's talk a wee bit about uh, the COVID inquiry that's going on. 
just now. Um, what's your feeling looking at it? Do you think we're going to get anything out of this that we'll value to you for the next pandemic? And as we've been told, there will be another one, hopefully not for mm -hmm. another generation. But uh, are we are we learning enough of the COVID inquiry? And the other one, Dan, do you think we should be really pointing fingers and saying to people, you're culpable for this? Yeah, I mean, I think we have already got some very useful pointers from the COVID inquiry. I think, you know, the, the, the stage one uh, preparation, uh, pandemic preparedness, I think we're already going to hear about the, the, the it's going to be published soon, the findings, we'll hear about austerity and the impact that had, we'll we hear about how cutting the NHS is just, you know, uh, shoots yourself in the foot. We'll hear about distracting us to Brexit when we should have been preparing for the pandemic and other pandemics and other health threats. I think we'll get some use there. I think there has been use in making the politicians sweat a bit. I mean, I think that was good. It was good to see Sunak sweat. It was good to see Johnson vigorously try to defend himself. He was panicking, and, and so he should. And I think it maybe will give a wee bit of cause for second thoughts for politicians in the future. And I think we've got the NHS module coming up next, which I think will look at these things like triage and capacity and things like that. And that will be helpful. It won't be enough to stop self-serving, greedy politicians like the ones we have now from looking at this as another opportunity to make money and to have influence and to, and, and to stay in power. I think for that, we do need prosecutions. I, I really do think that, you know, whether how far that goes, but certainly think that all the corruption stuff, all the stuff with the money going into the wrong places... And I think some of the early decision making, you know, what was the basis for that? I think we do need to have proper accountability for that. And, you know, you don't want people in power, Ronnie, that's not terrified about what happens when Absolutely. a pandemic hits. It's on my shoulders. I'm going to have to burden that. I'm going to have to step up to that. These guys seem to be enjoying themselves. They didn't, you know, Hancock was having a laugh. Boris was having parties. They never seem to take it seriously. And unless we make their serious consequences for failing, then why would they? That's what I think. I meant when I was talking about, I was I felt stupid during the, 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 the clapping because we we found out they were having parties, they were ignoring their, their own guidelines. And by the way, it is a warped kind of mind to look at suddenly a pandemic and see it as a profit-making opportunity. Oh. Let's talk about, Dan... The staff, you, t you hinted on it there, you've all changed. I saw some of those young nurses and doctors in there and I wondered how they are being supported now. Crikey, we're, we're making them strike, for heaven's sake, mm -hmm. uh, for, mm -hmm. for money they should be getting anyway. But how are they coping? Are they getting supported properly and dealing with this? I'm PTSD, you know, what do they reckon? About 60,000 People uh, within the NHS are mm. suffering some form of PTSD. I, I suspect that the, the, the numbers, the true numbers, will be higher. Um, I, I, I don't know of anyone that was frontline. I'm not saying with COVID, chat, taking COVID on, frontline anywhere in the health service that isn't traumatised in some way. And is the, are the juniors being supported? Definitely not. Bear in mind that we have come out we're not even out of the pandemic. The pandemic is still having an impact on us right now. 
But but in terms of the acute phase and seeing all those people die that didn't need to die and were surprised to die and you know we've we've come out of that phase and we've gone straight into the worst two winters on record and and and, and in fact all of 2023 we ran a bed capacity and certainly NHS England ran a bed capacity of about almost at 95 percent unheard of never in the history of the NHS has that ever happened. And we're running constantly. And, and and what happens there, we're all still struggling. We're trying to make our decisions. The consultants, the registrars, we're just trying to keep our head above water. We don't have time for teaching. We don't have time for counselling or time for pulling people through and pulling juniors through. Juniors are left there out on the edge, you know, trying to contribute, trying to learn, trying to develop. And it's not good enough, Ronnie. It is not good enough training environment for juniors. And I'll be very clear about this. If I was a junior today, as much as I love my country and I love the, my, the people in the country, I would not be staying. In no way I would put myself or my family through working in these conditions. It's, it's unrewarding. It's unsatisfying. You feel like they're, they're getting devalued every year. The pay, I mean, it's ridiculous that, 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 you know, they're thinking about, can I afford rent this month? Do I need to take on another shift? I mean, these are doctors, for God's sake. These are five years of med school. You're, you're, you're running cardiac arrests. I don't want my doctor worrying about making the bills add up at the end of the month. As a patient, I don't want to hear of my doctors worrying about how they make ends meet. I want them thinking about me. I want them thinking about how do they get me better. I want them spending their time getting better and better at being a doctor. I don't want them panicking about you know how you know what they're going to eat tonight. What how are they going to pay the rent? It's 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 bonkers. You know these are doctors. These are very valued professionals worldwide. And I've travelled. I've travelled with 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 medicine, and the respect you get is partly you know, the respect you deserve because what you're dealing with every day is traumatic. I mean, I'm dealing with life and death. I'm making life and death decisions. Yeah. Is, is it so much to ask that you pay me properly for that or you respect me properly or I have a proper break room or, you know, I, I, I've got enough time to study or, you know, these are basic things that we're failing on. And, you know, I'll say this, NHS Scotland, NHS Wales, uh, I don't know much about NHS Ireland, Northern Ireland, but they are doing better. They are putting effort in. They are trying to do reach out for the for, for staff and stuff. It's nowhere near enough, but there is some effort at least. But look how easy that is for them. This is a one billion fee for them, okay? Which you know is less than one percent of the annual budget of the NHS, less than ten percent of what was being wasted on PPE so far, and that would just Give them pay restoration. There you go. We're, you did really well through the pandemic. Thank you so yeah. much. We're restoring your pay to 2008 levels. Overnight, you've instantly got some goodwill from these junior doctors. It's a very simple solution. Very cost effective for the population. You don't need and, to recruit more doctors. And absolutely supported by the public. There wouldn't be a shout. Yes. There wouldn't be a shout. Yes, there wouldn't be a problem. Uh, just a, a nitty-gritty question for a second, Dan. Um, should we yeah. still... Uh, be vaccinating uh, the general population to protect the vulnerable. Is there a, is there a case to still carry on? Aye, I mean you, you're 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 protecting yourself. I mean, you know, if you're 
uh, an adult like me, I'm 46, you know, I don't have any health worries at the moment. But yeah, I'd like to keep it that way. And we know COVID comes with a lot of risks, uh, increases the risk of heart disease, increases the risk of long COVID, uh, for example. So yeah, I mean, it makes sense to, you know, avoid that by getting a vaccine. So yeah, I mean, I, I certainly think we should be offering it to people. People can get their own education about if it's for them or not, but certainly we should still be offering it. And, you know, even just putting into context the burden it has on the NHS, spectacular. I mean, it's unbelievable. Five to ten percent of all admissions, you know, are are, are COVID. I well, mean, right that, now we don't have five to ten percent. Right now, uh -huh. right now, I mean, we we are just through a peak in our hospital, and the peak lasted for about four weeks, five weeks, and we had to open a whole new ward. We had to increase our capacity by about twenty percent just to manage it all. The knock-on is someone's ready for home or nearly ready for home to get COVID. They're totally gubbed at that point. And, you know, you've then got two, three weeks to rehabilitate them again. They're in a hospital bed. You know, just operationally, it makes sense to keep the vaccine levels higher. Um, and as I say, certainly offering it to people, I think, would be a no-brainer. At the back end of this uh, COVID inquiry, do you think we'll have learned enough and would be, be ready for the next pandemic? No, I'm sorry. I don't think we will be ready um, and have one very crucial piece of evidence that kind of draws a line under that for me. During the, the, the pandemic itself, the acute phase of the pandemic, we triaged people online with 111. I don't know if you'll ever remember putting yeah. your symptoms into an online thing and it tells you whether you should call someone, stay at home, etc. Now, what they did there, uh, that was unique to the UK. No other country in the world did that as a triage system. Everybody else got to speak to someone. And actually, most countries, you got to see someone. And our triage system told the vast majority of people to stay home. On the advice that they gave when they said to stay home was how to manage breathlessness at home. This would be inconceivable that you would tell any patient how to manage breathlessness. Breathlessness is a red flag. That is, get your bum to hospital immediately. This is, you're in trouble now. And to recommend that people with breathlessness open a window, sit upright, use a fan, is I, I, I still to this day, I wrote a paper on it actually, I still to this day cannot believe that. And guess what, Ronnie? The advice is still in place. If you go on the NHS website right now, and about COVID, it will have a video about how you manage breathlessness at home. If we've not corrected that by now, the powers that be, those in charge, those up at the very top enchilance of the NHS of, 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 of guideline production, they've just they, they just don't get it. They've just completely missed it. And, it's incredible. and for me and yeah, for me until that until that changes, you know, I think we, we will learn. I will, you know, we've all learned. We will do things very differently, I think, when, you know, on the front line we will do things very differently, Ronnie. We will probably not listen as much. That was going to be my last question, <laughs> that if it hits the fan again, are you likely to trust the government that's in place? I'll probably judge it by what they're saying, but I'll, I'll tell you this, I'll, I'll definitely put my clinical opinion way before theirs. And 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 I, so actually happened to me, Ronnie, 
Um, I won't say where, but but I was clinical lead for COVID in our local hospital. And a lady who, in her 80s, she'd fallen and broken a bone. We sent her to a tertiary hospital. She got her bone fixed, but they also she also got COVID uh, in that hospital. And because of lack of ventilation, lack of PPE, etc., she was sent back to us. She was fine when she arrived. If she didn't need rehab for her bone, we would have sent her home. And then over the next few days, she started developing a bit of a cough. She felt a wee bit tired. We noticed her oxygen levels just tank, just dropped. She didn't, she wasn't even breathless. Hypoxia, all the maximum oxygen levels up. She wasn't for ITU and she was going down very quickly. Now, the policy in our hospital at the time was... We could not use this special type of oxygen flow because it was an aerosol generating procedure. And she couldn't go to Glasgow. She or she wouldn't want to, she didn't want to go to Glasgow. So we actually had to have a proper discussion, I will call it, um, debate with the most senior people of our trust to say, look, this lady's going to die. If we don't do this type of oxygen, you, you know, this aerosol generating oxygen requirement thing, then she will die. And we're all happy to do it. We're all vaccinated. You know, we're, we, we've aerated the room, you know, we're ready to do it, we want to do it. And it took a meeting like that, you know, and, 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 and they agreed. And she went all the way close to the edge and we pulled her all the way back. And eventually she went home and she was, she was, she was okay. But my point being, you needed to fight for it. You needed to fight, just as they very well portrayed and breathtaking, fantastic performance by the consultant. Um, and I love the consultant anaesthetist as well. I thought yeah. he was fantastic. Really played the consultant anaesthetist very well. Yes. Uh, very well played by by heart. Fighting for your patients, arguing for your patients, making it awkward, you know, for your seniors. Keep challenging it, keep challenging it. I think next time it happens, we will be doing that a hell of a lot more. Dr. Dan Goyle, NHS consultant and health policy editor for Byline Scotland. And you can read Dan's articles on the Byline Scotland website. That's it for now. I'll see you next time on the Byline Scotland podcast. Goodbye.